Well, my friends, we continue on now with our study of the book of Acts. At the beginning of this year, after we had uh, installed deacons and elders, I preached on Acts chapter 6, the first verses there, which is uh, the start of the uh, deacons, which is where God uh, brought deacons into the church. And uh, different men were appointed to that office, one of whom was Stephen. So I'm not going to preach again on that, but I'm going to move then to Stephen and his life and death. Now you'll notice as we re read about Stephen here, that the story is the same. In fact, we've seen this now twice already in the story. This is the third time we see this kind of same pattern, don't we? That the apostles come, they preach, they do a miracle, there's great excitement, there's great enthusiasm amongst the people, they're arrested, they're brought before the Sanhedrin, they're tried, and they're released again. Right? It happened with the healing of the lame man. Then it just happened in the last chapter, remember, when the Sanhedrin took it up a notch and they actually beat the apostles. Uh, they received the 40 minus 1 lashing. And remember last week, they, they counted it joy that they were, they, they, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. And now you have the same story again. That's interesting, isn't it? Stephen, this time, is preaching, and he's doing mighty miracles and wonders amongst the people. And he's arrested, and he's brought before the Sanhedrin, and he's tried. But now, you might say, the Sanhedrin takes it up a notch again, right? Because now Stephen is taken out and stoned. Well, as a preacher, I uh, could preach on that same subject, having preached already twice on, on that cycle, right, of preaching and getting arrested and having a trial. And so I thought this time I would focus uh, on a more, something more specific that Stephen says in his speech that caught my eye. And you can see that uh, in our text in Acts 6 and verse 14. Acts 6 and verse 14. And so I'm going to use this text, and I'm going to zero in on this for the sermon this morning. In Acts 6 and verse 14, For we have heard him say, that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place. And what place? Well, it could only be the temple, right? The massive temple that loomed, right, in the city of Jerusalem. This place, and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. So I'd like to consider with you the temple. And it's very interesting to trace this whole idea of a temple through the Old Testament through the Old Testament prophecy and into the New Testament, and then to see what Stephen says about it. Now, as we, as we begin this study, remember where we are, my friends, in the, in, the, in the book of Acts. Remember that this great transition is happening out of the Old Covenant and into the New. Remember that the pouring out of the Spirit, remember the prophet Joel, right, said at that time, during, in that day, right, there will come this pouring out of the Spirit, upon the people of God. It will be like, unlike anything that has ever happened before. And God will now bring in his new covenant, his, the kingdom of God as Jesus, that's the preferred term that Jesus uses, the kingdom of God, this time of the new covenant when there would be this pouring out of the spirit, when the old laws and rituals and ceremonies would transition out and the thing that they pointed to would come in, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now, uh, and, and you have to try to put yourself in the shoes of these people, my friends. I don't know if any of you have, like I have, 
uh, but some of you may have been raised in a different belief system than the one that you currently hold. And, and so you know something of the difficulty, right, of, of, of transitioning out of something that was different than what you believe now. And how hard those old ideas die, right? And now, now you have that same thing with these Jewish people. Remember, all the people we're dealing with right now are Jewish people. They are all people who've been raised in the Jewish religion. And now, after the Acts 2, right, and the apostles are beginning to preach the name of Jesus, they're preaching forgiveness of sins and the death and resurrection of Christ. Only when you believe in him, only when you are savingly joined to Jesus Christ by faith, can you have salvation? It's only a matter of time, isn't it? Until the ideas begin to percolate in the minds of the believers. Why do we need these old rituals anymore? What's the point of doing a sacrifice, killing a lamb, killing a, a goat or an ox of some kind, shedding its blood? When the very thing that it's pointed to has already come, has already taken place, and we find salvation in his blood. Why do I need the type or the picture or the shadow when the real thing is here? In the book of Acts, it appears that Stephen is one of the first people for whom these ideas begin to, you might say gel, I think that's kind of a term we would use, they, they begin to take form in his mind, right? It appears that the Jews at this time are still continuing all their Jewish practice and ritual. But now Stephen is the first to begin to give, uh, articulate, he begins to articulate this idea that these old pictures, these old types are no longer necessary if the antitype or if the fulfillment of all those pictures, the thing they were all pointing to, is now here. In fact, in fact, by offering a sacrifice, aren't you in a sense kind of saying that the thing that it points to has not come? That stands to reason, right? If you're, if you're, if you're, if you're killing a lamb or you're killing an ox, spilling its blood, sprinkling it on the altar and all that other ritual. The implication is that we're looking forward to what this pictures and what this represents before us. And it hasn't come yet. So, you know, there's lots of head scratching going on amongst the believers as they begin to ponder these things. And now Stephen begins to preach them openly, right? That's why when they bring him, by the way, uh, these, these men are called false witnesses, but there's certainly a kernel of truth in what these witnesses are saying against Stephen, right? For we have heard him say, it says in our text, that he will destroy this place and alter the customs, which Moses handed down to us. Well, of course he's going to alter the customs because the fulfillment of those customs is here. And not only is he here, he's, it's already happened. Jesus lived and he died and he rose again. We were witnesses of it. So why would you continue to practice these things? Now, my friends, that's all the rituals and all the sacrifices and all the different ceremonies that they performed as part of Jewish worship. But standing before the, 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 the believers at this time in the city of Jerusalem is the greatest building of that day. With the exception maybe of the Egyptian pyramids, there was no greater building in the ancient world than the Jewish temple. Herod's temple was magnificent times ten. 
It was massive. In fact, it wasn't even finished at the time. It was close to being finished, but it was not yet even finished. There were still workers working on Herod's temple. Right? Remember that Solomon uh, built his temple. That was destroyed by the Babylonians. Then the men came back, Zerubbabel, remember, and they rebuilt you know, a, a shell of the temple. It wasn't much. But when Herod came to power, Herod was a builder, and he went to work on that temple. He went to work on that temple, and he built it to be one of the greatest buildings in the ancient world. There's no question in my mind that if the temple was still standing, it would be one of the seven wonders. Uh, well, even if it's not standing, it'd be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was magnificent. I did not put a picture of it on the outline because I, I don't feel like it would do it justice. There are pictures of it all over the place that you can find. Uh, it was magnificent. The Jewish temple or Herod's temple, the second temple, as it's often called. Well, now, think about that. This temple was the grand object of Jewish worship. This was the center of Jewish worship. If you wanted to worship God as a Jewish person, you had to come to the temple. Now, that's not to say there weren't synagogues where people did worship, but the synagogues were very much like schools, almost like preaching stations. And yes, worship took place there, but still the center of Jewish worship was this temple. And that's what I want to consider with you this morning. This temple. What are we to make of this temple? And especially to see the minds of the believers as their eyes shift from the temple. I mean, how could you not look at it, right? I mean, just, it was unbelievable. And they shift their eyes to the humble picture of Jesus Christ. Just a Nazarene, as he's often called in these scriptures. Well, I don't want to give it all away. So let's start at the beginning here. What God gave Israel. Let's start there. What God gave to Israel. Now, we read something of that already in Acts chapter 7, in those words that we read. In Acts 7 and verse 44, Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. So this is the tabernacle. This is the first temple, you might say. It wasn't a temple in the sense of being grandiose. In fact, it was quite humble, just a tent. But what we read of in the last chapter of Exodus, Exodus chapter 40, is what God did to this tabernacle. In Exodus 40 and verse 34, after Moses finishes building the, the tabernacle, Exodus 40 and verse 34, then the cloud, that is the glory cloud that represented the presence of God, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And so this tells us immediately what a temple is. When I use that expression temple, and when we uh, encounter that word in the scripture, a temple is the dwelling place of God. It is the presence of the glory of the Lord. And God gave Israel a tabernacle, right? The tent of meeting. Why is it called the tent of meeting? Because this is where you met God. This is where God and people met. It was the tent of meeting. The glory of Jehovah filled the tabernacle. And so it was in the first place a temple. And God uh, stipulated in the Old Testament law, right, that all worship had to take place at this location. Any worship that was going to be acceptable to God 
took place at the tabernacle and the place where the tabernacle was originally in Shiloh, but then later moved to Jerusalem. Of course, this is one of the problems, right, that Jeroboam faced when the, when the kingdom of Israel split into two, right? And you had the two tribes in the south and the ten tribes in the north. But remember, the tabernacle was in the south. So Jeroboam quickly realizes that all my people are going to be making yearly trips to the tabernacle to, to perform their ritual there. We can't have that. They might decide to stay. So that's why he builds the two calves at the north end and at the south end of the ten tribes of Israel to prevent, or to at least to uh, make it so people didn't have to make that trip every time. Because the worship of God had to take place at the tabernacle. So that's what God gave to Israel. Now what did God promise to David? Here we can move to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Because here is the, uh, the chapter where David begins, or where he hatches this plan to build a temple for God in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It'd be good if you would turn there with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Right? It says, now it came about, in verse 1, now it came about when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies that the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now I dwell in a house of cedar. In other words, I dwell in a grand palace. But the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. David has this, he looks at his house, he compares it to where God lives, and he says, that's terrible. Why shouldn't God have a magnificent temple, a magnificent palace like I live in? Well, we read on in the chapter, in verse 4, But in the same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Right, so that's what God is saying. I did not ask you to build me a house. I live in this tabernacle, this tent. And of course, we know that God doesn't live there, but the, the presence of God was, you might say, localized in that location. That was where the glory of the Lord was. That's where the tent of meeting was. So, uh, and then if you drop down to verse 8, Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts. And God talks to him about all the things that God had done for him. And if you drop down to verse 11, so Second Samuel 7 and verse 11, Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies, the Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. So God completely reverses it. David says, I'm going to build a house for God. But God comes back and says, no, I'm going to build a house for you, David. Verse 12, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. And he says in verse 15, My loving kindness shall not depart from him. And verse 16, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So now God promises to David, David, don't build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And on the throne of Israel, this is the house that God is going to build for David. On your throne, the throne of David, one of your sons is going to sit forever and ever. There will never come an end to his kingdom. 
This is what God promises to David. Now, of course, we know that David died. Solomon, was, uh, Solomon took the throne. And Solomon did build a temple. Solomon did build a temple, a physical brick and stone temple. But that temple was not the promise that God made to David. Remember, God said that on your throne, one of your descendants will sit forever and forever. And of course, we know this furthermore because we know that in due time, Solomon's temple was destroyed, completely leveled. Furthermore, we know that the throne of David, in its physical, biological sense, did come to an end, right? The last of the Davidic kings was Zedekiah. And then there was no king sitting on the throne of David. Until a young virgin in, in, in uh, Nazareth is told that she will give birth to a son. And he will sit on the throne of David. And his kingdom will never come to an end. You see, my friends, already in the Old Testament, it's pointing in the direction, isn't it, that Stephen has been thinking about. And that is slowly, that God is slowly un, un, unfolding in Stephen's mind. What did God promise Ezekiel? Now, I know you all remember those sermons we preached on Ezekiel last year, right? And you'll remember at the, at the, close, of those, at the close of the book of Ezekiel, yeah, uh, we have that, the glorious temple that Ezekiel sees. Remember, Ezekiel is in exile. He's heard of the complete destruction of Solomon's temple. And he no doubt is, is despairing about it. But God gives him a vision. And it starts in Ezekiel 40. And he sees a man. Ezekiel 40 in verse 3. There was a man whose appearance was the, like the appearance of bronze with a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand. And he was standing in the gateway. And the man said to me, Son of man, see with your eyes, hear with your ears, and give attention to all that I am going to show you. And then the temple is built. This beautiful temple is built for Ezekiel. This is what God promised Ezekiel. That even though the physical temple had been leveled in Jerusalem and burned to the ground, that God was going to build a temple for his people. That was going to be unparalleled in its beauty and in its size. Well, let's come then to what Jesus said about the temple. What Jesus said about the temple. And remember, this is what would have been in the mind of the apostles as they taught, and what the apostles would have taught Stephen. Now I turn to John 1 and verse 14. John 1 and verse 14. And the word, and remember that in John 1 verse 1, it says that the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the word, who is God, becomes flesh. And he dwells. And now that word dwell there is a very special word. I mean, sorry, it's not a very special word. But it's a, in this context, it's special. Because it's, it's the word basically tabernacled. He set up a tent, as it were. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Now that's interesting, isn't it? In light of what we saw in the Old Testament. That now the Lord Jesus Christ comes. He is the word. He is God. He dwells or he tabernacles amongst us. 
And John says, we, has, we saw his glory, the glory of the only begotten one from the Father. Again, you, you see these, these ideas just percolating around in the mind of Stephen as he hears these things from the apostles. And he sees this magnificent temple spread out before him. He sees the smoke of the sacrifices going up. He sees the priests going up in procession, up those magnificent steps into the temple. He sees all the ritual. He sees the baths where the people purify themselves every day. He sees the, 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 the sheep and the oxen and the doves being sold regularly there. And his mind begins to stir. We have seen the glory of God when we saw Jesus Christ. Well, then what is all this glory here? Turn with me then one chapter over to uh, John 2. John 2, these very interesting words that Jesus gives right after he does the miracle uh, of Cana in Galilee. And he goes up to the Passover and he drives all the, the doves and the, and, the, and the animals out of the temple. And the Jews, of course, are very irritated with this. And they ask him, John 2, verse 18, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answers them. And again, a very cryptic, a very mysterious thing that Jesus says here. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now that's deeply interesting for us, isn't it? Because here's Jesus in the, in the shadow of the temple, and these very irritated Jews are saying to him, why did you do this? Who do you think you are? What authority do you have that you can just chase all these merchants out of the temple's grounds? And Jesus says, listen, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up again. Where there's a very clear parallel, well, it's very clear to us. I don't know how clear it would have been to them, right? That's why John gives us this explanatory comment, right? In verse 21, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. But there, Jesus is clearly making a parallel between the temple as it stood in its physical beauty and magnificence and his own body. And he says, destroy this body. In other words, this body, my body, my physical frame, is going to be killed and put in a grave. And in three days, I'm going to raise it up. But notice Jesus doesn't say, you're going to kill me, and in three days, I'm going to come back to life again. He phrases it in the language of the temple. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up again. And of course, the Jews don't understand this, and they're even more irritated. Now, what are you talking about? What an absurd thing to say, Jesus. This temple isn't even finished yet. They've been working on it for 46 years. And you think you're just going to tear it down and raise it up. I mean, they think Jesus has gone mad. But again, Jesus is giving them one of these, these cryptic statements, right? These mysterious statements, which would unbelievers would, would, wouldn't understand to their own destruction, right? But his people understood later, right? Destroy this temple. In other words, this body is the temple. I am the real temple. On another occasion, Jesus said, I am greater than the temple. Now imagine that. Here sits Jesus, right? This, this poor, homeless, penniless peasant, you might say, right? And there's the magnificent temple and, the, and the, one of the greatest wonders of the world. And Jesus says, I am greater than the temple. 
And now Jesus in John 2 says, destroy this temple, speaking about his body, and yet clearly using language that parallels it to the temple building there. And in three days, I will raise it up again. In other words, I am the real temple. When you see me, you're coming to meet God. You're meeting God. And that's what a temple is, right? A tent of meeting. A temple is a place where we meet God. And Jesus now says, basically, to the, to his, to the people there, I am the temple. When you come to me, you're coming to meet God. Now in John 4, in John 4 and verse 23, we read similar teaching from Jesus. Here, Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman. And in John 4, 23, in verse 22, I mean, John 4 and verse 22, Jesus says, you worship, that is you Samaritans, worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Now you know that the Samaritans worshipped God. Their temple, right, their tent of meeting, was on Mount Gerizim. The Jewish people, their tent of meeting was in Jerusalem. And Jesus says the hour is coming. In fact, he says it's already here. When you're not going to go to Mount Gerizim, and you're not going to go to Jerusalem either. Because the Father is going to seek people to worship him in a true spirit, in a, in a spirit of mind. It's not going to matter where you are. It's going to matter what spirit you come in. Now again, what kind of language is that, my friends, for the Jewish people to hear? It probably was less astonishing for the woman of Samaria to hear that than for the disciples who are thinking, Jesus, what are you talking about? You're saying that that magnificent temple in Jerusalem is just a useless thing now? And that after all, we could just bow our knees right here and worship God? Jesus is saying exactly right. God is a spirit. God is everywhere present. And when we bring a humble spirit of love and devotion to God, when we had that broken and that contrite spirit that the psalmist spoke about, it does not matter where we are, but we can bow our knees anywhere we're at and we can worship God. And in fact, those are the kinds of worshipers that God is seeking. Now you come to Stephen. After all this, and you can imagine, my friends, that all this is percolating around in Stephen's mind. He knows the Old Testament. All the stuff that we reviewed this morning he knows all that stuff. And now he's beginning to think. And he's beginning to put these thoughts into words. And he's beginning to say things like you don't need to climb those temple steps. You don't need these oxen, these sheep, these animals here. All you need to do is to bow your knees wherever you're at and to come to Jesus. Now, of course, Jesus is not there anymore physically. What does he mean? He means you take the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, come to God. And in him, you have a temple. Yes, this temple is useless. You don't need it anymore. Do you want to meet God? You come, you, you name the name of Jesus. Right? And Stephen already is giving hints about that. Because in Acts 7, right, he said that God does not dwell. God does not dwell in a house made of human hands. Acts 7 and verse 44. 
uh, verse 48. Moreover, or however, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. And the astonishing thing, my friends, that would have begun to occur to these men is that, then what use is this building? What use is all this service? What use are all these priests? What do we need all these animals for? I can just come to Jesus. Jesus is the great sacrifice that puts an end to all those sacrifices. Jesus is the great temple that makes this huge building useless. I can come to God through Jesus wherever I'm at. Again, as these ideas begin to percolate through the minds of these people, you, you begin to wonder how difficult that must have been for them to come to grips with this idea that the old way was passed. You know that there was a young man who was Stephen's successor. At this point, he's full of himself and he's full of Pharisaism, the Apostle Paul. But later, Paul came to, to, uh, to teach and he wrote to the Colossian church in Colossians 2 and verse 9. He says, For in him, that is in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Stephen is beginning to understand that now, isn't he? And if all the fullness of the deity, if all the fullness of God dwells in Jesus, then I can just come to him. When I come to Jesus, I come to my tent of meeting. This is the place where I can meet with God. What a revolution in the thoughts of these people, my friends. Again, we sit here this morning and we think, oh, well, I already knew that. My friends, in the minds of these Jewish people, to let go of these ideas must have been earth-shaking. Only the grace of God could bring them to that point in their life where they slowly on jettisoned, got rid of, eliminated these ideas, these old ideas, right? that they had to come to a place to meet God. But now, every time they name the name of Jesus, they come into the presence of God. I ask in my first point of application this question, my friends. I press it upon you. I ask you this morning, and God asks you this morning, do you want to meet God? I ask the children, I ask the young people gathered with us this morning, do you want to meet God? It is a fundamental and basic question of what it means to be a human person in this world. Do you want to meet your creator? This is why the, the idea of the existence of an eternal God is so unsettling to secular and atheistic-minded people, agnostic people, because they know that if there's a God out there, if he exists, the, the thought inevitably sneaks into their mind that I'm going to have to meet him. And so I ask you again this morning, my friends, do you want to meet God? Before I talk about where we can meet God, I want to know from you, is there a desire in your heart to meet him? Does that thought fill you with fear? Or is that something that you say, I long to meet him? I want to know God in this world. I want to meet him. I want to stand in his presence. I want to stand before his throne. I want to meet my creator. How many people live their life and end their life without even a desire, without even a thought that they should meet their maker, that they should meet God, that they should seek a tent of meeting, a place where they can meet God. Many religious people tremble in terror to meet God. I think of Martin Luther, right? We know his story. 
And how the thought of meeting God and coming into his presence filled him with horror. Because he knew his sin and his guilt. It's almost as if Luther did want to meet God. But he was so horrified at the thought. Think of the rich young ruler. It says that Jesus loved him. The rich young ruler, with all his mistaken ideas, he wanted to meet God. He wanted to inherit the kingdom of God. And so I ask you, I ask the young and old, men and women this morning, do you desire to meet God? Answer that question honestly in your own conscience. But I come then to the main point of the sermon, right? The second point, where do we meet God? We meet God when we meet Jesus. Now, we can't meet Jesus physically in our life. And that's why we're taught here by Stephen that when we name the name of Jesus in prayer, we come into God's presence. We often talk about this building as being God's, the place where we come to meet God. And it certainly is. But we all know, right, that this building is not, that the presence of God is not limited to this building or not limited to any church building. We can meet God in our car in the parking lot. We can meet God in our home. We can meet God anywhere. God is a spirit. He is not limited to a place. And when we name the name of Christ, we come into God's presence. In the Old Testament, the people had to come to the temple. Why did they have to come to the temple? They had to come to the tent of meeting or the temple. Why? Because there was blood there. There was bloodshed there. And that's another important point this morning, my friends, that we have to understand. That the reason we can't come into God's presence is because of what we read in the law this morning. We all have fallen afoul of that law. We've all broken it. We're all transgressors against the law. And if we come into God's presence in that condition, we'll be struck down in God's perfect justice. But the beauty of what the temple and what the tabernacle taught us is that there is blood. Under the old covenant, they had to come to Jerusalem. They had to come to Shiloh. They had to come to the temple, to the tabernacle, whatever, whatever was there for them. But in this time, my friends, under the new covenant, I can proclaim to you the glorious truth that Jesus says, come unto me. You can have access to God through Jesus. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2.18, For through him, that is through Jesus, we both have access, that is Jew and Gentile, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. I asked you already this morning, do you want to meet God? Well, my friends, if there is a person here, if we, there, all of us desire to meet God, we meet him. In that way of access which has been made by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. My friends, would you take your forms and prayers book, and I'd like to read this with you in our Confession of Faith. If you take your forms and prayers book, and you turn to page 26. That is on page 180. Page 180. And you'll see Article 26 on the left-hand side of the page there, in the middle, where it says, Article 26, the intercession of Christ. These are such beautiful words. I think these are some of the favorite words in the whole Belgic Confession. Article 26. Read with me here on page 180. We believe that we have no access to God except through the one and only mediator and intercessor, 
Jesus Christ the righteous. He therefore was made man, uniting together the divine and human natures, so that we human beings might have access to the divine majesty. Otherwise, we would have no access. But this mediator whom the Father has appointed between himself and us ought not terrify us by his greatness, so that we have to look for another one, according to our fancy. For neither in heaven nor among the creatures on earth is there anyone who loves us more than Jesus Christ does. Now it continues on, very beautifully written. But I just wanted to share those words with you this morning. My friends, that there is neither in heaven nor among the creatures on earth is there anyone who loves us more than Jesus Christ, who opens up that way of access to the Father. My third point, my last point, prayer. My friends, this then lays a foundation for us to understand what prayer is. Prayer is coming to our temple. Do you see those Old Testament people of God as they go out to their herd and they pick out a sheep or a goat or an oxen? They have to make sure that it's one without blemish. They tie a rope around that and they lead that animal to the temple. That's what they did. Now we do the same thing. We do the same thing. We find our lamb. He has no blemish. And we take him with us. We name his name. When we come to our temple, when we come to our to the to the to the place where we meet God the Father. And that's what prayer is. Prayer is us coming to the temple to meet God. And we can only come to Him by naming the name of Christ. Now, my friends, I ask you about your own prayer life. And immediately we all hang our heads in shame. I understand that. But I ask you this morning, my friends, is there a place? A place in your office? A place in your barn, in your truck, your house? Some place where you meet God on a daily basis. I know it's with many deficiencies. I know it's with many distractions. I know perhaps it's not as regular a thing as you would like it to be. But I ask you this morning, my friends, about your temple. I ask you about your place where you take the name of Jesus and you come into the presence of God. It's very convicting, my friends, to think about prayer. If we have no prayer, we have no grace. If we are not people of prayer, and I'm not saying that your prayer life is everything that you want it to be, but the truth is very simple this morning, that if we are not people of prayer, then we're not Christians. And we should not think of ourselves as Christians. Prayer to a Christian is like breathing to a human person. And I know we all stand condemned this morning. I with you. But still, my friends, you know, I remember a man, I, I didn't really understand this so much in my childhood, but I think about it with so much pleasure today. He would stand in our prayer meetings at my old church and he would say, Lord, give me a prayer to pray. You understand that language? Give me a prayer to pray. 
because he felt so much the prayerlessness of his own life. And he prayed that God would give him a prayer. And so many times we find ourselves so cold, right? And so prayerless. But still we come to our prayers. Still we come to our closet, that place where we meet God. And we say, Lord, give me a prayer to pray. And isn't it true, my friends, and now I speak, I appeal to your own experience. Isn't it true that many times when we persevere in prayer, that the Lord comes over in a special way? In a way that we can never articulate in words. But he gives us an experience. He gives us a taste of his presence and of his grace that we never can forget in our life. It doesn't happen every time we pray. But God in his sovereignty can come down and he can touch us. He can give us a taste of his own grace and his mercy in a way that we don't forget. It's an experience perhaps that you don't articulate to any person. But in your own soul, you remember those times when God came down and met with us. What a precious thing that is for the people of God. My friends, I commit these things into your attention and pray that we would all continue to pray. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. That God would speak to us even as we seek to meet him in the person of Jesus Christ. Shall we pray? Lord, we draw near to you this morning. Having heard about this temple, different buildings throughout the history of your people, but now localized in the person of Jesus Christ, so that in him we can meet you. And so this morning, O oh God, we take the name of Jesus with us. We offer up him, Lord. We lift him up as the only way in which we can come into your presence. And we say, and we earnestly pray, O oh God, that you would meet with us. And that there also would come those times in our life, Lord, when we could experience your presence in a special way that you would overcome all our doubts and all our anxieties. That way we might find in Christ a perfect Savior. That we might find in the Almighty God, O oh God, your presence. We might find that you are a father to us. And that we are your adopted children. And that you would testify with our spirits that we are your children. And that we have an eternal refuge in the blood of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would bless us then this day. Help us to reflect upon these glorious truths. Will you bring us back also this evening as we consider what it means to sit at the right hand, at your right hand. Lord, we commit ourselves into your hands and ask that you would bless us. And be the after preacher this day to the glory of your holy name. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn now in our blue hymnals to number 89. We opened the service with a call to worship from Psalm 48. Let's now close our service by singing the same psalm. Within thy temple, Lord, in that most holy place, we on thy loving kindness dwell the wonders of thy grace. So we'll sing the three verses of Psalm, or of number 89 in the blue hymnal.
blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.